Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. Hey, I'm Christian Sager. So, before we get into today's topic, which is, uh, again, like another one of our great October kind of monster-themed ones, let's talk about a few upcoming things for the show. Uh, we have... First of all, Periscope, if you're not familiar with that, it's a live streaming video app that's connected to Twitter, and we're going to do a little experiment with it starting on October 23rd, which is a Friday. Joe, Robert, and I are going to use Periscope to start addressing some of our listener mail. We've just been getting a ton of listener mail lately and didn't really feel like we could uh, address all of it in one quarterly podcast, so we thought, why don't we try this Periscope thing out? Uh, some of our colleagues here at How Stuff Works are using it, and so if you want to to check that out, follow us on social media, and you'll you know we'll be broadcasting it uh, far and wide to let you know what time it's going to be available. The other thing is that because it's October and it's Monster Time, we are bringing back our video series Monster Science, and I say ours, but it's really uh, yours, Robert. I wasn't involved with the show the first two seasons that these were created, and uh, the. The, the new episodes have been shot, and I'm just I'm really looking forward to it because Monster Science is one of my favorite things that's ever been done here. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun to put together. It's uh, kind of a if you've not seen it before, uh, anybody out there, it's basically like a daytime horror host from the uh, '90s uh, <laughs> comparing uh, fictional monsters to real world organisms. Yeah, we, you guys have episodes on everything from Cthulhu and uh, Jason Voorhees to there's actually a Mummies episode, right? There is, and uh, the Mummy episode, all those episodes already exist on our YouTube channel and on StuffToBlowYourMind.com. But if you're following us on Facebook, tomorrow we're going to be uh, posting it right to Facebook. So you'll be able to watch it on our, our Facebook page there. So um, so to, to get in touch with us on all those social things, like if you want to follow us on Periscope or see these videos, make sure that you check us out on this, whatever your social media channel of choice is. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Uh, all those we use, they handle Blow the Mind. There's, of course, the mothership, StuffToBlowYourMind.com, and our YouTube channel as well. All right. So on that note, let us dive into the world of the mummy, particularly the Egyptian mummy. Um, there are various mummification traditions uh, throughout the world, and many of them are just so fascinating. But yeah, there's more than enough to talk about with just Egyptian mummies. It's here. an incredibly deep topic, and uh, yeah, I think so. We're gonna we decided to specifically focus on the Egyptian uh, process and mythology here in today's episode. Uh, if there's enough interest, let us know, uh, and we will go on and do another episode on all the other variations. Because one of the things that I found that was interesting was that apparently it was being done in the Americas oh, yeah. even before it was being done in Egypt. Yeah, I believe uh, one of the oldest uh, hair samples that we have comes from uh, a, a Central American uh, mummy. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, if you want to hear about self-mummifying uh, uh, monks in uh, in Asia, let us know. Uh, that's something we can discuss. You want to hear about bog people? That can be another episode. But for this episode, there's there's so much about uh, Egyptian mummies uh, that 
that we will be struggling to fit uh, enough into one episode here today. Yeah, and they're really pervasive. I think when, you know, uh, in Western culture, at least, when we think mummies or mummification, everybody goes for the Egyptian one, mainly because... Uh, it's popularity in films and, and other media, right? Like, uh, yeah. the, the curse of a mummy or something like that. Well, even in children's books, and this is something oh, that yeah. I've really come on to in the last few years, uh, with a, with a son, is that, uh, that mummies pop up in books all the time. He, has, he my son has a book where, like, a skeleton is going trick or treating and is chased by a mummy. Uh-huh. Uh, of course, uh, Maurice Sendak uh, had a, had a wonderful pop-up book that has a, a mummy in it. And in both of those, you see this, uh, this trope employ that you also encounter in, in other b- bits of mummy media, mm-hmm. where, of course, you grab hold of the wrapping. And you pull the wrapping, and then the mummy spins around like a top. It's and the is Monster destroyed. Squad uh, oh, way to take out a mummy. That's yeah. that's how they did it in Monster Squad. Yeah, yeah uh, one of my favorite movies from when I was a kid, and it's it's currently streaming on Netflix. So I was able to catch it again mm-hmm. recently. But yeah, they 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 like tie the bandage to an arrow, shoot it into a tree, and the mummy's like hanging onto the back of their car and slowly unravels. It turns out there was nothing there except for a skull ah. the whole time. Which on one level, I was always disappointed with. In Monster Squad, because the mummy is clearly cooler looking yeah. than than what they do with him, but I can see where the trope is attractive, particularly in children's literature, because you have this threatening but easily unwound creature, right? This this threat yeah. that is easily dismissed but still visually impressive. Well, all right, I'm gonna go out on a limb here. Uh, as a horror fan, I've never found mummies uh, to be scary or to make much sense. In fact, like I always thought of mummies as being like the kind of like they would be the um the 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 monster that like makes friends with you, right? Like yeah. the way Frankenstein does in Monster Squad. Uh I just and especially from when when you look at like the actual process, the science behind it and the history in Egyptian culture, where does this idea of mummies as like these evil monsters that are going to kill us come from? Well, I, for, for my own part, I find that it makes more sense if you think about it in terms of the, the Egyptian mummy as a, as a traveler across time and space. Okay. okay? So, um, and we'll get into more into the, the cosmology here shortly, but essentially you have this individual who is leaving our world through the gates of death, yeah. traveling to another world, and in another world where, uh, n- nothing is guaranteed. It's not just like, oh, you're going to Egyptian heaven. No, you're going to an Egyptian afterlife that's rife with danger. You're going to need supplies. You're going to need some, some servants. You're going to need, uh, you know, some spells to protect you. Mm-hmm. So it's a dangerous journey, not unlike, say, sending, um, Colonist, uh, like frozen colonist on a spaceship, uh, generation ship, you know, across the cosmos to another world. Sure. And yeah. then what it happens if you wake up halfway through because some dumb museum dude has decided that he wants to put you on display? You're going to be angry. Yeah. Uh, you're going to be a little confused and, and you might not be in the best physical condition. That's, so you're going to kill where, some people. That's where it always seems to come from, right? Is the idea. It seems like even as we are doing it, we as Western seem to acknowledge that the idea of us taking these bodies and these sacred objects from their sites and taking them on a tour or popping them in a museum mm-hmm. somewhere is uh, inherently wrong right and yeah. that we must be punished for doing so yeah it is there and I, I'm surely somebody has written at length on this to what extent yeah, is the mummy this is a monster an externalization of our own inner 
guilt uh-huh. having really just ripped pieces of this culture apart and spread it across the world because you see you see obelisks yeah. from ancient Egypt in Paris in, in uh, London in New York and of course uh, museum items in museums around the world pilfered mm-hmm. from Egypt yeah I mean there was just a, a tour that was here like a year or two ago I think that was like a um, you know a, a touring showcase of, of mummies that mm-hmm. that goes from one city to another and sets up shop and you know it's there for six months and you can go and see it and then it's gone it moves on to the next city i i um i mean this is something i don't know about you but like i always grew up like going on school trips to museums and the the mummy was always the big thing right yeah going getting to see a mummy or like its sarcophagus or something like that was always like that was the coolest part of the trip but now as an adult i look back on it and i'm like wow that that's like imagine if somebody like dug up my grandfather like a couple hundred years from now and just mm-hmm. put his coffin on display for kindergartners to run past. This is very strange. It is, yeah. And, and I certainly agree. I remember looking forward to seeing the mummy at the uh, the, the major museum in Nashville when uh, when I would when school groups up there would uh, would go uh, to visit. But but yeah, now it just feels a real, little weird. Well, okay. Let's let's nail this down. What exactly is a mummy? I think we all have ideas of how it works. And of course, we uh, many of us had that same experience of going to the museum and reading the paragraph that's inscribed next to the actual case. That, But I don't really think that gives you enough context. Right. So a mummy is simply a human being whose soft tissue has been preserved after death. So normally, of course, decomposition uh, takes place and reduces the body to a skeleton in a matter of months. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the rate of decompo- decomposition is dependent on a number of environmental f- uh, factors. It's going to, if you're in a humid environment, it's going to go a lot faster. Right. A drier, colder environment is going to go a lot slower. And there's a, a sort of like procedure for decomposition, right? It starts with autolysis, which is when the, you, you know your organs, basically the digestive uh, enzymes inside them, like your intestines, they start digesting themselves, right? There's no more food coming in, so your body starts, or the bacteria inside of it at least, starts eating you. Yeah, society just falls apart in there, basically. Yeah. Then you yeah. have putrefaction, the breakdown of organic matter by bacteria. This sets in about three days after death and just eats everything away in a matter of months. And it's going to be accelerated in human environments due to rapid bacterial reproduction. Yeah, and, th- and so again, like we talked about, environment plays a big deal here. So if conditions are cold enough or dry enough, these are all the things that, that aren't, they, they're, they're so harsh to bacteria that they can't survive uh, if they don't have any oxygen, for right. instance. That's another one. So in those cases, the body does not fully decompose, and it, it takes thousands of years for this process to slow down, and it, and it uh, desiccates in a very different way than what we're used to. And that's sort of where this Egyptian mummification practice came in because of the environmental factors that were available to them there. Yeah, so mummification can be a matter of just falling into a glacier, into a mm. peat bog, dying in a desert and becoming covered with sand, or it's due to funeral design. It's uh, it, it's due to various embalming traditions that have popped up throughout human history. And I want to quickly mention that old hair sample that I uh, was talking about earlier. Yeah. Uh, that was from a 9,000-year-old Chilean mummy. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And for a while, that was the, uh, like the oldest hair sample that we had. Uh, mm-hmm. But in 2009, archaeologists happened upon uh, the oldest human hairs ever found at that, that point, and they found it in a pile of fossilized hyena poop. And that was between 195,000 and 257,000 years old. So somebody was eaten by a hyena, presumably. Yeah. 
and, and their hair and it just wound up being on. preserved in, uh, in wow. the hyena poop. So in a sense, hyena poop is its own form. Its own kind of mummification. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So that is just a taste of some of the things we could bring you if you want an episode on non-Egyptian mummies. But let's focus on the cosmology of the Egyptian mummy. So what is the the religious significance? What's the mythos around this that, that brought Egyptian culture into spending so much ornate fascination on uh, embalming their dead? Well, f- first of all, I do, I do want to clarify that when you're talking about Egyptian cosmology, you're talking about a, a long period of time. And, of course, uh, traditions and faith evolves over time. And sometimes yeah. you have a, a pesky pharaoh that comes along and says, hey, we're not we're not polytheistic anymore. Right. Now we're monotheistic. And then you turn that over as well. But uh, for the most part, um, we, we can pick out certain key elements here. Uh, you know, one of the reasons that I, th- I think all of us can, are continually fascinated by Egyptian cosmology is that it's it's so alien to us. It's so right. different from our modern uh, models of faith. Uh, and even in its own time, it didn't really travel well. It was it was yeah. kind of an alien belief system, uh, even in its day. Um, this is, of course, where you get like the Stargate type thing from, yeah. right? The idea that it was actually aliens that brought this mythos to human culture. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's easy to. And, and I love to, to consider those those kind of models, but but on the other hand, the non-alien uh, uh, explanation is even stranger, you know, because you're yep. just like, who were these people that uh, you know? How does how does a culture reach this point where they have this this just really rich religion that puts an extreme emphasis on the afterlife and in, in the process introduces the notion of judgment after death? So. In a sense, the, the DNA of all these modern religions, and I say modern about like, you know, thousand, two thousand year old religions here, yeah. are, are all kind of based on the same view of life after death. Yeah, the thing that's fascinating about it to me is it really shows the imagination of human culture mm-hmm. going very far back before technological advancements that we uh, associate with like modern day kind of fantasy or or I guess science fiction, uh, weird things. But the, I mean, these these people were coming up with them over 3,000, 4,000 years ago. It's just these fascinating stories that connected everything together, right? Yeah. All right, so I'm going to just try and roll very quickly here through some of the basics of the uh, ancient Egyptian journey into the afterlife. So first of all, you don't just have this singular notion of a soul. The the Egyptian soul cocktail basically consists of several parts. You have the ka, life force, the ku, the spiritual intelligence, the sekum, the power, uh, the the kahabit, the shadow, and ren, your name. Okay. So after you die, the uh, the dog headed uh, Anubis guides your your soul to the hall of justice, tended to by various gods. Your your heart is weighed on a scale, um, and uh, and if you fail, you're gonna fall. Your soul's gonna fall, and this monstrous crocodile-headed Ahmed is gonna eat your soul. So That's kind of like their version of hell. Kind of like a, the the annihilation model, though, where okay. it's, you're not you're just you just cease to be. Okay. Um, and then from there, if you pass, then you enter uh, what was called Seket Aru, the field of rushes. And this is the, God, just the, the almost unimaginable other world of Egyptian mm-hmm. mythology. We have 15 different uh, regions. Each one's ruled by a different god. And, um, 
and it's a world where you you might transform into an animal. You might need spells to protect you from giant snakes and giant beetles and curses. You're going to need food when you get there. You're yeah. going to need to farm when you get there. So it, it really is kind of this model of arriving on a distant world and having to colonize it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is. It's it's so it's such an interesting concept of the afterlife because in a lot of our circumstances, we just imagine the afterlife either being uh, utter perfection, right, like heaven, mm-hmm. or uh, utter torment, like hell, but right. not like a whole other life where yeah. I've got to have all these things and I've got to prepare for it. And your whole life is essentially you building up the material wealth to be able to have those things in the next life, right? Yeah, I mean, it's... It, it, it's a situation where the afterlife is as much, if not more, work than the, the <laughs> real world, right? It, it sounds like, uh, not to demean this uh, cosmology in any way, but it honestly sounds like World of Warcraft to me. Yeah. Like, it sounds like a video game that's really interesting, but is work. Yeah, it's detailed in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which uh, comes from uh, uh, 1500 BCE, that... Uh, that you could even end up landing in the in the airless region of Exe, which is uh, the realm of quote that August God who is in his egg. Which uh, I don't think there are a lot of details beyond that, but just the idea that you could wind up in this region where there's some sort of horrible elder thing that yeah. rules over it, it just from its sits egg, in a giant egg. Yeah. That's Lovecraftian, if there ever was one. So. So yeah, so that's it's kind of this idea that the Egyptian mummy is a traveler through time and space, and its okay. body is in kind of a suspended, deathly state of uh, suspended animation. And that's because let me see if I've got this correctly. Because the idea is that the ka part of your soul is connected to your physical body, right? And mm-hmm. so if the physical body is destroyed, that part of your soul is destroyed as well. So that this is where this idea comes, and it probably came up alongside the sort of evolution, the early model of the mummification practice, of this idea of like preserving your body and your organs as such and making sure that they are uh, presentable and uh, so that that part of your soul is also functional. Yeah. And it's and it's important again to note that the cosmology itself evolved over time, as did the funeral traditions, and you can you can definitely see how they informed each other as well. So it's not a situation where someone, bunch of Egyptian, uh, uh, you know, doctors and embalmers were sitting around. It's like, all right, well, we have this model of the afterlife to work with. How do we treat the dead? No, they uh, they they co-evolved over you know three thousand years. Yeah, I think that's the really important thing to consider here, and that's how we're going to present it too. We're sort of going to be going through each of the. Uh, the eras in terms of the, the this mummification uh, process and how right. it evolved, right? But that, again, consider it, it's 3,000 years that this went through. So think about some of the things that we practice today that we think of as like totally common uh, 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 cultural traditions, yeah. right? And they're just decades old, really. Exactly. Decades mm-hmm. old compared to something. What were we practicing 3,000 years ago that we're still doing the same way today, you know? So it's yeah. it's just interesting to see how that evolved over their course of time and then where we are now compared to that. We look at it as being so alien, but it's in fact, it's all of human history. Yeah. So the <laughs> earliest model we can look to, and this is, this is key, is is the practice of just burying your dead in a pit in the hot sand. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see uh, we see this from various examples, such as there are 600 graves from the pre-dynastic uh, Upper Egyptian uh, Bedarian culture from around uh, 4,400 to uh, to 4,000 uh, BCE. And this is just where 
You just dig a pit in the hot sand, you throw the body in, and you let a natural mummification take its course. Right. So, like, as we were talking about earlier, this, these environmental conditions were perfect uh, for the area that they were in, and that, like, you could bury a body, and the internal organs would be preserved. The skin would, you know, crisp into kind of like a dark, hardened shell. But uh, it, it, it preserved skin and hair by doing this, essentially because there's... There wasn't water. Uh, there's probably little oxygen, right? And it was uh, uh, relatively cold, I would assume, mm-hmm. uh, depending on how deep you dig. Right. Uh, we say hot sands, but you know, yeah, presumably they're digging. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and so it was this phenomenon that first indicated the Egyptians. I'm assuming maybe maybe an animal pulled out an old corpse one day and they saw it and they went, "Oh my God, it's still oh my God, oh my Anubis, uh, it still has hair and its skin is still the same." And and then they thought, "Oh well, maybe the soul is still there too." Yeah, I think you definitely have to consider the fact that like this is just they weren't thinking of this as mummification as much as this was just what you did with your dead, and yeah. then they saw what happened to a body after death. And there's, let's reiterate this too. There's no casket here. There's not even any wrappings here. It's just a dead body buried in the sand. Right. But of course that evolves, right? Mm-hmm. The cosmology is evolving. Treatment of the dead is changing. Um, and uh, you see uh, additions made to that sort of bury him in the pit model. So during the pre-dynastic period of uh, uh, between 4500 and, uh, and 3100 BCE, Animal skin wrappings, baskets, and then eventually short wooden coffins become the fashion. Yeah. So, so one of the things I read about this period was that uh, sometimes they would they would give you a leather pillow. Uh, other times they would put a basket over your head. And these were things that were supposed to make you comfortable mm-hmm. in this afterlife. Uh, and then eventually it turned into like wicker basket kind of. Kind of like coffins, right? Like they were, the idea was that it would, uh, provide comfort for their dead loved ones. Uh, and then this eventually leads to coffins and then to tombs, right? Yeah, it kind of, you can see it beginning as just a matter of like, ah, I hate to see granddad just down there in a pit like that. Let me right. put some under his head. Yeah, let me or, give him a leather let me pillow. Wrap him in something, yeah. And then eventually, like that begins to inform ideas of, well, mm-hmm. where's grandpa going? What's he, why is he so dressed up? So let's pause for a second before we dive more into the mummy thing. How how do how do you want to be buried? Like like if you wanted to be really comfortable in the afterlife, right? Let, oh. Let's 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 look at this. Like, what are the things that you're gonna want? Well, um, all my pets and loved ones, okay, uh, buried beside me. Uh, no, uh, you know, I guess I'd like uh, some good books on hand. You know, yeah. some music. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And it, I I think that was a practice. Not I don't know about music because they didn't have recordings back then, but but certainly musical instruments. Yeah, that would be yeah. included. Yeah, I, I, uh, this definitely made me, like, think about <laughs> mortality a lot. Mm-hmm. And I've never, I, I suppose I should finally get a living will nailed down with my wife or something like that. But I've always just kind of wanted to have a natural burial, not, not the hot sands or something like that. But I'd be okay with, like, what they call them, like, environmental burials, right? Yeah, uh, I actually just did a video about these for work. And I think Joe and I are talking about doing uh, a natural burial episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because, um, because, I mean, it's something that's based in very old models, yeah. uh, obviously, of of, um, of funeral rites. But there are new technological approaches that put uh, put some fascinating spins on mm-hmm. it. Yeah, well. it just seems to me like uh, it's attractive to me, I suppose, because of the significance of, like, letting your body decay but also kind of give back to the environment around it. Yeah. But uh, uh, I don't know. I, I understand coffins and I understand uh, cremation, but it just doesn't feel like something... 
that I I would be interested in. I I wouldn't, especially coffins. Like man, yeah. those things are expensive, and uh, a lot of people. Like I had a friend whose mother recently died, and he said that it was just a racket when they went in to go to buy the coffin. I wonder if that translates all the way back to this origin of these coffins in Egyptian times, you know, that they, yeah. they were trying to make their dead loved ones comfortable. Uh, how does that, you know, like you think about the, like the lining in the coffin and all these various uh, factors that are involved. Yeah, it's like, like nowadays it's like a little bed. And it's, like, yeah. it's kind of based in the same idea of like I hate to see the body. I'm essentially anthropomorphizing an 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 inhuman thing at yeah. this point. It's no longer a yeah. person, but I want to treat it like it is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I understand too, like the, the, the comfort that that provides to the family in the same way that this provided comfort as well, but mm-hmm. it sort of evolved into a whole nother thing, right? Oh yeah. It, you could argue that it got, got kind of out of control. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And interesting, interestingly enough, uh, when you look back to this period, this pre-dynastic period, uh, you also see, Preparation of the body taking on a form of de- dismemberment and defleshing. So sometimes you see the head missing or placed somewhere else or the remaining bones uh, uh, reassembled in an order that might not conform to their original placement. So it's not just like a complete like one, two, three from burying the body to right. mummifying the body. You see some some different approaches taken to preparing the bones. So there was, yeah, the uh, I had a hard time understanding how this fit in culturally with the idea of, of comfort, mm-hmm. but I can see that there are obviously like different branches of understanding regarding, I guess, what we would call mortuary practice today. Yeah. Uh, and clearly the defleshing and the, the beheading and all that stuff didn't win over, over the cultural significance of, uh, mummification. Yeah, like the defleshing is like, don't, it's easy to sort of think of it in more of its morbid terms, but essentially it's talking, uh, we're talking about a means of preserving the body. Like they realize that the yeah. flesh is going to rot away, so let's just get it down to the bones and then store those away. It, 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 it gets into that area of what's important about the body, which continues to be um, an important topic as you look at mummification process. Yeah, absolutely, because... So they they get to this point where they start using these wick, wicker kind of coffins or or, or uh, tomb like things, but then they realize, oh, the bodies actually start decomposing when we do. Yeah, this. because we're in effect protect, we're um, we're sealing it off from the the natural drying elements of the sand. So yeah. We're interfering with the thing that we really liked about burying our dead in the sand. How can we get that back? And so this is where Egyptian science comes in. Uh, essentially, they had the challenge of figuring out how to replicate the sand effect, uh, but making the bodies comfortable uh, and also preserved. And and this is because of the sort of immortality connection between the ka and the physical body, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, by this point, we get to the early dynastic age. This is around... Uh, 3200 to 3000 BC. Yeah. And during this time, you see them taking, uh, to wrapping the bodies in an attempt to, to keep out the elements and just like really wrapping them, like multiple layers of wrapping and also throwing in some, um, so, some, uh, some charms here and there as, uh, you know, a magical deterrent as well. The thing is, uh, it didn't work all that well because, uh, the rot, the decomposition is coming from within. Mm-hmm. They thought it was about keeping something out. Right. But uh, right. as we discussed, like the very first process of decomposition is occurring with uh, with a breakdown in the body. So this is essentially like the origin of this, though, right? They're taking the wrappings, they're coating them in resin, and they're, and they're covering the body with this. But um, one of the things I'd like us to keep in mind here going forward from this point in Egyptian uh, history is 
that if the body was something to be preserved and to come back to, imagine what these processes would be like if you came back into your body, right? <laughs> so like you're covered in the, let's consider it from the, the, the fictional uh, 20th century <laughs> mummy point of view, right? Yeah. Like you come back into this body, you're fully conscious and uh, you're covered just, just beginning in this period, you're covered in, uh, wrappings and hot resin mm-hmm. that's just solidified, right? So that's already going to be uncomfortable. And it gets more uncomfortable. Yeah, because they, like I say, they, they eventually realize, all right, there's rotting going on inside the body. Decomposition is taking place inside no matter what we do on the outside. So they realize, well, we need to remove most of the uh, the guts. Yeah. So they, they take uh, to the practice of uh, making a, a slit in the abdomen and uh, and pulling out as much of, uh, of the organs in there as they, they can get away with. And this is where uh, they they begin the tradition of those. It's they're canopic jars, is that right? So you basically they're like fine pottery uh, that your each of your organs is stored in next to your body, uh, and and uh, the, the each of the organs is also wrapped in the same way, right? Like they're they're wrapped in resin and yeah. uh, linen, I believe. Yeah, and then eventually they're decorating the uh, the canopic jars more and more. And, uh, and, and they're taking additional steps to sort of spruce up the body. Uh, they're, they're starting to use, uh, masks, uh, to mm-hmm. cover for the loss of facial structure, as well as, uh, stucco plaster coatings, um, uh, that, that are, uh, that are added to the wrappings to reproduce the facial features of the individual within. Right. And this s- is like early plastic surgery on a corpse. Like, Kinda, they're, they're yeah. like trying to make it appear as lifelike as possible. Yeah. Even, even though it's, it's not. And they're, and they're pulling out, like, constituent parts of it, too, that are, you know, making it kind of collapse, so they end up stuffing things inside of it, too. Interestingly enough, um, the ancient Egyptians uh, were some of the first practitioners of plastic surgery, so they, oh, they really? were actually uh, able to to, uh, to implement that on living there you go. as well. So you could see how these two would be connected practices. Oh, yeah. What? They realized that there was something, you know, you could you could fashion flesh, you could yeah. fashion it after death, and you could also fashion it while alive. And they eventually took to where they're modeling the whole body with the plaster mm-hmm. uh, and using, uh, you know, this uh, this resin-soaked linen and the stucco overlay uh, for, you know, in, in the case of really well-off departed individuals, uh, you know, a recreation of their physical form. And we're talking about right now, this is the fourth dynasty era. Uh, and the big innovation of this is what you were talking about with the removal of organs, but also just that they, instead of just like digging in there and taking the organs out, they made a very small abdominal incision that allowed them to just get that stuff out of there very quickly without damaging it uh, so they could prevent the natural decay of the organs. Because, you know, apparently these things start to, depending on the temperature, obviously if it's hot and humid, uh, within two to three hours, those are going to start to decompose. So they wanted to get them out of the body as quickly as possible. Right. Now, they always left the heart, though, because the heart is the, exactly. the seat of the mind. Yeah. And, uh, other, well, we'll talk about them as well, but kidneys as well. They, mm-hmm. didn't, they didn't really find much use for those. But so that's Fourth Dynasty. Then you get Fifth Dynasty. They start. This is when they start like kind of making portrait uh, version, like almost like statues out of the mummies. The, between the fifth and the sixth is when mummification starts spreading to lower class people. And we'll talk a little bit about like there was a different practice. There was like a I believe the How Stuff Works article refers to it as like the budget model. Yeah. Like a, a and how that worked in particular. But the, you go all the way through up until the eleventh dynasty, and then we get to another period of improvement. 
Yeah, this is when they start uh, dehydrating the bodies using large amounts of, uh, of natron, which is a mixture of sodium carbonate and sodium bicarbonate or chloride. So it was an improvement over the uh, an earlier method of just using salt for drying, and or of course the the older method was just the, the hot sands. Right. Um, but uh, here's the thing: it was hazardous uh, to work with if you're the, the you know the, the individual there and uh, having to dry out the bodies because it would burn your skin. It could cause all sorts of eye and respiratory problems. Yeah. So if you're the embalmer and you're working with this stuff, it's pretty hazardous. Like uh, one of the accounts I read was that natron, if it got in your eye, it could cause conjunctivitis conjunctival edemas or corneal destruction. I mean, it would eat your eye. Uh, so I can imagine that these embalmers tried to be pretty careful with it. But it, it was essentially, um, the idea from it, it was, it was these sodium compounds that they got from the shores of different Egyptian lakes or sometimes like uh, the desert west of the Nile Delta. They, they were able to find this stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was very salty um, and it, it absorbed moisture. I almost wonder... I'm curious about the process, given like what we know about how salt and moisture interact now. Like if it was absorption or adsorption, um, but it was it was taking the the water out of here, and it, unlike the sands, which would darken the skin over time, it didn't do that as much. Uh, the, these um, these mummies definitely did like darken compared to their natural hue, but not as much as as you found when you just threw the body in hot sands. And one other thing, they actually used natron to dissolve fats, and, and it was used as like a cleaning material too. So, mm-hmm. you know, you compare that to like a embalming fluid that we use nowadays, and it's not all all that different. Not that I use embalming fluid to like clean the furniture in my house, but some people might. Uh, but apparently, they originally tried to make like liquid natron mixtures, mm-hmm. uh, and they 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 did like experiments on animals, and they found that it just like totally disintegrated the animals from the inside out and just made this gory mess. So they they decided not to use it that way. Speaking of which, um, Anna Maria Rosso, who's an excellent article on the the global history of mummification, which I'll link to on the um, landing page for this episode. She uh, tells us that, quote, by the Middle Kingdom, a turpentine-like oleoresin was also injected into the anus to dissolve the organs and to extract them. So there's another gory detail to take in mind when you think about especially a reanimate mummy. Yeah, and one of the uh, iterations of that uh, uh, turpentine uh, injected into the anus uh method, I guess, that I read was that that was a, a lower class thing later on. Like that ended up being like, if you wanted the, uh, the, 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 the economy model mm-hmm. of mummification, that was kind of how it worked. But we'll get to that in, uh, in a moment. So we're up to the 12th century now. We're into the 1990s, uh, the 1991 BCE. <laughs> the 1990s BCE. BCE yeah. yeah. They were around 1782 BC. Again, just thinking about the staggering Chunks of history we're dealing yeah. with. Think how much our world has changed in, uh, you know, in, in three or four hundred years. Right. Yeah. So, like, when we're talking about these innovations, we're saying like hundreds of years went by before they started the innovations we're about to talk about in right. the twelfth century. It's twelfth dynasty, actually. Sorry, not twelfth century. Yeah. So during this uh, period, uh, you're seeing the heart left in place after the uh, internal organs were removed. We already touched on some of that. The lids of the canopic jars uh, are decorated with the heads of gods to protect the entrails. Mm. The body cavity is disinfected and stuffed with linen. More people were buried in uh, anthropoid uh, coffins, so coffins that look like humans mm-hmm. on the outside, that sort of classic sarcophagus uh, appearance. Fingernails are tied on to prevent them from just falling out. Uh, wooden or clay models uh, act as servants 
And also you see rock tombs gaining uh, popularity, especially among the wealthier classes. So all those things evolved over, you know, the hundreds of years between the 11th dynasty and the 12th dynasty. It's fascinating, you know, what how long certain things take and then how short some things take, too, to be adapted. Mm -hmm. And like you were saying earlier, I guess it depends on who's in power and what they what they kind of want. Right. Yeah. So then we eventually get into the New Kingdom uh, era. This is 1570 through 1070 BCE, and this is where we kind of see the the peak, right? This is where we see yeah. the sort of standard ideal uh, models for mummification. Yeah, New Kingdom era is considered basically like the most representative of mummification practice over the 3,000 yeah. years that we're also, talking about. Also, it's the about. Cadillac of mummification. Exactly, because these are the ones that were the best preserved. Um but again, keep in mind, like this was over three thousand years, so this is not how necessarily the you know the the early dynasty mummies would be made. But this is the 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 the, the standard mummification practice as we know it today from the New Kingdom era. So we think, uh, or at least Egyptologists think, that the, these rituals were performed in an area that's called the Red Land, which is this desert region that wasn't particularly heavily populated, but was useful about it was that it had easy access to the Nile River. So okay. they could use that for washing the bodies. Uh, and they would take the body to, uh, the, it was called Ibu, the place of purification, and this is where they would do the body washing. It symbolized a rebirth, passing on from one world to the next. And once they cleaned it, that's when they brought it to the next part, which is the Per Nefer, and that's called the House of Beauty. You want to hit on that one? Yes. Uh, so this is where we see a major change take place in our uh, preparation of mummies. Um, in order to extract the brain, a metal chisel or hook is inserted or hammered up through the nostril. Ugh. Uh, I know these are dead bodies, but just like... <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, you have to break the bone to get it up through there, so there's like a, a crack, uh, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then, essentially, you drag and scoop it all out, right? Yeah, they like they use these long spoons, I guess, that they would stick up through that cracked nostril and, and just scoop the whole thing out. Essentially, the idea was that they didn't know at the time what the brain was for, so they assumed that we wouldn't need it. Yeah, it's probably world. something tied to the sinuses, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, well, like, like you said earlier, the heart was far more important. Right. I have to say, this is one of the reasons I, I like the mummy segment in the Tales from the Dark Side movie. Oh, yeah? Because the, the mummy in that ultimately is not treated all that well you know he's not particularly powerful but he does get the drop on a human at one point and uh jab a coat hanger up his nose and pull his brain <laughs> so all right it's, yeah, it's, it's one of the best uh, mummy kills out there that's not just straight up strangulation <laughs> well i'm surprised that he didn't also uh, uh punch him in the kidneys because apparently they didn't think that the kidneys were very important either they uh you know like we talked about they removed all the organs except for the kidneys, because they, they just thought, well, we, we don't exactly know what these are for. Same as the brain, but they scooped those out. Uh, but all these organs were washed separately, coated in resin, wrapped in a lin linen strips. Then they're put in those canopic jars. Uh, and the jars were almost always situated in some way in the southeast corner of wherever the tomb was located. Um I'm sure there's cosmological significance to that. Yeah, and they're yeah they're on hand, but they're also yeah they're not right up next to the body. And so after they do this, they've got the you know scoop out the brain, get out the lower organs, then they cut open the body's diaphragm and remove the lungs. They keep the heart, 
Why? Because the heart was considered the seat of the mind at the time, which I think is really interesting because like now in our modern culture, we think of the brain as being the seat of the mind and we, we very much think of it as being located in our head, right? Mm -hmm. I wonder if there was a different kind of cultural thing of like the heart led forward, you know, led the body forward. Uh, posture was better in that respect. Yeah, possibly. (laughs) Uh, and they, rinsed out this empty cavity. Once you get all the organs out of there, basically they wanted to purify it. So they used palm wine. I I wonder if this is because of the bacteria. Like they thought the palm wine would maybe kill off the bacteria that was in there. Not that they would n- understand. Yeah, you know, it's, it's sweet smelling and it it is strong. So yeah, yeah, I could see where there might be some inkling of that. And then after they purified that, then they would pack it in with incense. And th- there you go. Maybe it is the smell because they put incense in there and other kind of packing materials and filled it back up so that it, you know, had uh, appeared like it was naturally full again. And then you're stitching it all back together. You're closing any the incisions and just kind of uh, retidying the package, right? Yeah, and there's of course the 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 natron comes in here too. So you cover the entire body in this thick layer of natron from head to toe, and you let it sit for 35 to 40 days. Um, and this is so that the body just dries completely before it's mummified. Uh, and in fact, like you know, it took so long. And grave robbery and, and scavenging animals were so common that they actually would set guards up outside of, of these embalming areas uh, to make sure that the bodies weren't taken. During this time, it's up to the family to get all the linen for the mummification. So they've got to come up with something like 4,000 square feet worth of linen uh, to bring to the embalmers. In fact, the wealthy sometimes use materials that were clothes that were on sacred statues. So they would take these clothing off of statues and use that instead for their their wealthy dead relatives where like if you were a lower class you just got like old clothes hand-me-downs or like household linens so i'm assuming it's just like dirty old rags from around the house yeah they'd bring those down all right so we're wrapping the body at this point uh bandaging takes a week or two um and they start with the hands and the feet uh individual fingers and toes then uh, limbs and torso, the head, they wrap it as a whole, then they coat it in more hot resin to glue everything back in place. Right, because <laughs> before this, like, in order to keep everything in place, they basically plugged up every single orifice and pore with hot resin, right? Right. And, like, so just, you know, we it's very easy to just say hot resin. But, like, uh, my understanding, like, uh, what resin is mainly used for today is, like, sculpting, right? Like, it's a material that you use to make, like, s- certain kinds of statues. So this isn't just like glue. This is like pretty heavy duty stuff that is uh, coating, sticking everything together and plugging it all up. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. I, I often think of the mummy at this point as kind of like a uh, like a yogurt covered raisin, you know, Yeah, just really just sealing it all in. Um, and then, you know, on top of that, you're adding additional um, decorations, right? Perhaps a mask mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, a, the likeness of, a, of an Egyptian god even. Yeah, yeah, uh, depending on, you know, I would assume the status of mm-hmm. the person, right? Uh, the idea behind this was that the mask would help the person's spirit find their body in the tombs because there's so many other bodies. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you get the jackal mask, then you're the, you know, you know, like I'm, I'm a big fan of, Jackal God. <laughs> Anubis is the jackal yes, God, right? So. Okay. So uh <laughs> so then you can locate your haunted spirit can locate your body to get back in touch with it. Yeah, and, and along those lines, various amulets are thrown in to oh, aid. Yeah. Um uh 
arms were originally placed on the side, though that ends up being changed to the more, uh, you know, uh, stereotypical uh, crossing of the arms mm-hmm. on the body. And, uh, yeah, then you, uh, essentially it's time to, to put that body in the, uh, the coffin and send it on its journey, right? Yeah, and so they called, uh, these coffins suhet, which I had not heard before researching this. I always just thought of them as sarcophaguses or sar- sarcophagi, I guess. But, uh, they, they, they used these suhet coffins, then brought it to a tomb where a priest would perform this ritual called the ceremony of the mouth. Uh, and the idea here was that they were giving uh, the five senses back to the dead in the afterlife by touching different sacred objects to the face that was on the, the suet coffin, you know, because mm-hmm. it's carved in the shape of a person. And they seal everything up after that. So it's the body is sealed up. It's put inside a coffin. It's put inside a tomb. And, and you know, you, you get an idea for why there's so much, uh, I guess, so many layers to this, right? Because of uh, scavenging animals or, as what we're going to talk about later, grave robbery. Yes. So you want you want some measure of security there. Now, here's the cheaper version, okay? So if you're not royalty and you're not upper class, this is what you get. The embalmers inject your body with this oil mixture. It sounds to me like the same thing that we were talking about earlier with the resin. Mm-hmm. It goes inside the torso cavity. So instead of taking all the organs out, you just fill it up with this oil. They plug up all the orifices and they just let this oil sit in there for a few days. And then they, this is my terminology, they pop the corks. They let all that oil flow out of every orifice and it carries the liquefied internal organs with it. And then the mummification process. So apparently, the like the expensive part was taking out the organs and wrapping those all individually. Yeah, it sounds kind of grim, but I guess if you do it every day, you get used to it, like most things, right? Yeah, I mean, I like honestly, from how I understand mortuary practice works today, it's probably not all that much more grim, you know? Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. So after this point, uh, again. It's uh, it's reached its peak, uh, certainly by the 21st uh, dynasty. Um, mm-hmm. you're, you're mummified and you gain this doll-like appearance. Mm-hmm. And then um, in the third uh, intermediate and late period, that's 1070 to 30 BCE, this is where we see uh, uh, the, the old ways are being abandoned and forgotten. Uh, decadence, inept embalming, it's all leading to uh, uh, less refined approaches. Yeah, so essentially, you know, as the culture changed, less attention was paid to the body's condition, condition, and uh, embalming just went a lot faster, and subsequently it was more inept. So uh, by the time Greeks arrived in Egypt in, like, uh, somewhere between 742 and 730 BCE, uh, rapid decomposition was happening again. Uh, there were either uh, bodies were incompletely wrapped, so, you know, it wasn't the, the, the function of the, of the form wasn't being met anymore. Uh, and then the Romans were uh, by th- up until like 395 A.D. were still using like narrow bandages, you know, wrapping bodies in them. But they, there wasn't anything as methodical as what we were talking about in the like real, you know, height of mummification in Egypt. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what happens after these uh, bodies are sent on their cosmic journey. What happens when it's uh, interrupted? All right, we're back. Uh, so... Here's one of the things about uh, about mummies. As, as we mentioned earlier, uh, they're invariably dug up, moved around, studied, mm-hmm. taken apart, taken to museums across the world, and kind of imprisoned in cultures completely alien to their own. And uh, and the, the thing is that the grave robbing 
was always a problem, like even from the, in the ancient days, because you'd have the, this, these bodies that were buried with some degree of, um, of valuables, and there are going to be people around who want to take advantage of that, to the point that, that often the assistants uh, of the builders themselves, uh, who are mm-hmm. building these tombs, are, are the ones that are involved in the theft. Yeah, it's like an inside job type thing, like they sort of uh, either themselves were doing it, or they were informing other, I guess, like bandits or something on, on where to to break in, which tombs in particular held the, the greatest amounts of wealth. Yeah, Rosso goes into some detail on this in, in her work that I mentioned earlier. And um, uh, as an example of this, she points out that uh, during the uh, uh, Ramesses, the, the 11th reign, 45 workmen in the royal necropolis were arrested and tortured and, after confessing, brought to trial, and uh, 38 of them were sentenced to death for grave robbing. Yeah. Um, and th- there are various other accounts here. I don't know if we want to go into to many of them, but uh, but basically, when we look back at um, uh, at the, the writings, uh, there uh, there are various rebellions that result in poor people smashing open royal tombs. Mm-hmm. You uh, you also see the tendency later on for. Um, individuals to engage in a cycle of grave robbing. So in some cases, you have tombs that were looted and then used again for burial by new people, then looted again. Yeah. So, again, just think of those vast the vast period of time we're talking about here and all the various upheavals and ins and outs that are going to occur. And what this, I, I think, says to me is that there were, while this uh, idea of making the dead comfortable and, and it being a sacred practice was practiced by some, there were certainly other people who were more interested in the material wealth of the living of, of, their, oh, yeah. of their of their current circumstances, and so that's why you had a lot of these uh, break-ins. But the, you know, this is what led to them moving bodies to hidden places or rewrapping them, restoring damage that was done to them. There's all kinds of of uh, uh, mummification practices that came out of how prevalent the grave robbing was, and of course. The worst grave robbers of all. Oh yes, well, of course, uh, uh, came from uh, came in the form of uh, co- colonial influences. Mm. Um, yeah, the nineteenth century especially was a time of just immense plundering by European treasure hunters, fueled by the genuine interest uh, in Egyptology. I mean, some of the individuals involved in this were, uh, for instance, uh, William uh, uh, Flinders Petrie, uh, really the father of modern Egyptology, but he looted tons of artifacts. So. Uh, you know, it's like the two movements are are combined here. And then at, back at home in Europe, you have uh, all of this uh, interest in anything uh, oriental. So mm-hmm. so that's fueling the need for this. And it's one of the reasons you find, again, Egyptian obelisks in New York and London and Paris. And you find all these cultural treasures just spread across international museums. And at the same time, you have um, Egypt's uh, modernizing ruler, uh, Muhammad Ali, uh, who was actually an Ottoman Albanian um, and uh, he created a dynasty that ruled until the 1952 revolution. And he was all too willing to give up uh, uh, these uh, various artifacts in order to uh, ingratiate himself to these uh, imperial and colonial powers. Just like imagine that like uh, uh, like some, we're in the middle of a presidential cycle right now. Mm-hmm. Let, let's say let's say Donald Trump gets elected and Donald Trump says, you know what? Like, I think uh, it's okay if uh, all of Europe and uh, uh, let, let's let Asia have them too. Uh, they can dig up all of our graves of all of our loved ones and just take their bodies and put them in museums or or uh, traveling sideshows. 
You guys cool with that? <laughs> oh, it doesn't matter if you're cool that we're going to do it. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, the, the thing is too that I mentioned that, uh, 1952 revolution, it wasn't until around, it wasn't until around that period that the Egyptian government began to actually restrict treasure hunters, limiting on, them on, only to only 50% of the artifacts that they found. And it wasn't until the late 1980s that uh, Egypt really cracked down on this sort of behavior in a very meaningful way. So I guess like, this is something to think about the next time we're at the museum and we're we're looking at this stuff. And there's one part of me that's like, oh, I'm really glad that this is here and we have access to it and we're able to sort of see the history here, right, in this location. But there's another part of me that feels like guilty about it and thinks, well, you know, maybe this stuff should be back at home where it was initially intended to be. Um, if you want to go see it, go to Egypt. Yeah, and there, I mean, it's def- there's definitely been a movement uh in uh, over the past uh, few decades to to see about the return of these yeah. objects and uh it's just kind of an ongoing issue um and this is where like we were talking about earlier that pop culture guilt comes from in the curse of the mummy right that the yeah. mummy is going to come out and kill everybody who's responsible for bringing its body uh away from its origin site yeah and and uh, there are certainly some individuals out there who uh who deserve a little wrath and <laughs> the thing is it's one thing to look at you know egyptologists who are running off with the with this stuff yeah but then from the from the twelfth century b c e onward so again for a, for a pretty long period of time, you see a lot of mistreatment of um of mummies uh, in the Middle East and especially in Europe. And so this is not just people saying, oh, this is cool, I want to study this or I want to take this uh, bit of art attached to it and display it somewhere. You see uh, preserved corpses destroyed for mere sport. Um, You also see them used as kindling for fire. And most shocking of all, uh, and rather morbidly entertainingly of all, uh, thousands of mummies end up perishing in apothecaries' corpse grinders for use in medicine. Right. So, I mean, all of these things kind of show you where the culture's priorities headed, where, where they where they changed. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, the weird thing about this is that you have, uh, from the 12th uh, to the 17th uh, centuries, Europeans who are engaging in medicinal cannibalism through the consumption of... Uh, of medicines derived from mummy powder. So they, this is like we 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 just did an episode on Wolfsbane. This mm-hmm. is like yet another like kind of classic monster from the Universal era that uh, is medicinal in origin somehow. Yeah, though ultimately, as as, uh, as, as I'll explain, um, completely useless. They used they yeah. used it supposedly to treat and thinking they were treating everything from headache headaches to erectile dysfunction and stomach ulcers and tumors. So they drank it in tinctures. They mixed it into salves. Uh, I, I, you know, may, they might have even used it in suppositories, for all I know. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, they're 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 intaking, they're consuming the, this powder, and it all hinges on bitumen, the the world's first petroleum product. Really, it's a sticky black. Uh, viscous substance, uh, you probably know it better as asphalt, uh, but it was highly prized in the ancient world, and for the longest it was primarily a Mesopotamian monopoly. Uh, the substance uh, saw use in various uh, endeavors, including boat caulking, art, cos- uh, cosmetics, but physicians in the region eventually used it to treat a number of ailments, and uh, and word of these ailments eventually spread to Europe. But how are you going to obtain this stuff if you don't have access to uh, Mesopotamian uh, bitumen deposits? Well, Word had it at the time that uh, the ancient Egyptians used bitumen as a preservative in their mummies. And you're probably thinking, well, I don't remember you guys mentioning bitumen earlier. Yeah. Uh, there's a reason. Um, 
but it ends up becoming so uh, per- pervasive that even the word mummy comes from the Persian word for wax, mumia, uh, used to describe bitumen. Okay. Yet while the Egyptians used bitumen occasionally uh, for from, from about uh, uh, 1100 uh, CE onward, they largely used resins and oils in their um, in their mortuary practices. But the Europeans didn't know this. Uh, so their mumia-based uh, medicines contained equal parts, magical thinking, and placebo effect. The treatments seemed to work, so they just continued grinding up the corpses. <laughs> and uh, when mummies were scarce, uh, contemporary cadavers were actually dried and pulverized to produce an imitation product that you could sell off. And it just keeps going. The practice doesn't fall away until the 18th century. And actual uh, bitumen still sees limited use uh, in modern uh, RAN as a skin treatment. But, but so, again, that's actual bitumen and not this, this ground-up mummies, which yeah. contain probably none of it. So, like, to put it in perspective, you know, we're looking back on the practice of mummification during Egyptian times and going, oh, that's kind of alien and weird and we're fascinated with it. And, it, you know, human history changes over time. And yet, like, not... Two centuries ago, uh, we were grinding up those bodies essentially so that we could digest asphalt because yeah. uh, we thought that that was going to be healthy for us. Yeah, ground up mummies was essentially the pumpkin spice latte yeah. of the day. Yeah, um, so I mean, like, uh, we're not all that much uh, more advanced than we like to think we are. You know, I'm sure like uh, there's going to be things from from modern uh, time today that a couple hundred years from now people are going to look back and be like, oh, I can't believe that they thought like. Uh, uh, but like ginkgo or, or something. Yeah. Who knows what it is. You know, not that I'm de- uh, denigrating the use of ginkgo. I certainly have had more than one drink with that in it. But you know what I mean? Like start adding it to beers, I think, right? Or or, or other kind of supplements. And then eventually society goes, Wait, what, what are we doing? What were we doing? What yeah. was that ginkgo thing about? Yeah. Why were we so crazy about, um, about palm juice? Why did we like know. kale so much? Or kombucha? <laughs> but of course, uh, you know, the whole eating of, of mummies, essentially, the medicinal cannibalism of mummies is one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, just just the curiosity, just the uh, the exploration uh, and and the the rise of Egyptology saw you know all sorts of early unwrappings, unwrapping parties. You end up artifacts that are destroyed. And on top of this, it be, there's a you know there's a boom, there's a demand for artifacts. So you have uh, you have local dealers in Egypt that are breaking up artifacts into multiple parts. They're placing a mummy from one time period in an unrelated casket from another, and then they're selling that. So it becomes it, you're destroying the artifacts to learn about them, but then also the market for them is making it harder to study them because yeah. there's stuff that's mismatched. You know, this is a lot like. Uh, palimpsests. When yeah. we talked about palimpsests earlier, like when they first started examining those, they're pouring acid on it and scraping them with knives and things like that. And now they're using, you know, uh, technology to preserve them, but also examine them. It sounds yeah. like that's kind of the same history of, uh, Dissecting mummies, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you open an ancient text and you risk uh, the pages disintegrating it. Same thing happens when you unwrap a mummy. You're exposing stuff to air that hasn't been exposed in in, in thousands of years, and yeah. it can just crumble. Fortunately, today we have a number of techniques that allow us to take apart the mummy without actually taking it apart. Right, mm-hmm, right. Various uh, radiographic techniques uh, that uh, that enable non-destructive studies of these uh, mummified remains. Interestingly enough, the pioneer on some of these was uh, was Flinders Petrie in uh, in 1898, uh, who again was involved in a lot of uh, some of the more destructive aspects of Egyptology at the time. But mm-hmm. you know he. 
And to his credit, he also helped pave the way for uh, some of the tools we have today, such as X-rays, endoscopic techniques, um, which I think the Egyptians would have appreciated based yeah. on their their interests, um, uh, as well as uh, you know the use of stable isotopes, trace metals, DNA, uh, carbon dating, uh, CT scanning is is very interesting. So this is where you use. Uh, X-ray computed uh, tomography. This is uh, a computer combines multiple X-rays from different angles and creates a cross section. Okay, and it, sort it, of like a 3D scanner. Yeah, you can you create this this 3D cross section of of the body, mm-hmm. and uh, this has been used to. To, to make a number of different discoveries about uh, existing and newly discovered mummies. Uh, but one example that I love, is a, this is a 2012 uh, study where they used a, a CT to scan a 2,400-year-old female mummy, and they re- revealed a tubular object embedded in its skull between the brain's left uh, parietal bone at, and the, the resin-filled back of the skull. Huh. And it turned out that it was a tool used uh, for the removal of the brain. And it wasn't an iron hook, as we mentioned earlier, and yeah. as uh, Herodotus uh, wrote about, but it was just a wooden stick. So this was this was a, an, an economic discount yeah. version of the mummification process. It just got And they accidentally it. left it there? Yeah, I guess they realized, wow. hey, occasionally you're just going to lose a tool yeah. up there, and yeah. you could you could dig it out, but you might as well leave it because who's is the is the mummy going to come back and rat you out? Yeah, Probably exactly. Not. Well, you know, talk again, thinking about the comfort of these mummies. You know, they wake up and they they've got wooden tools shoved up their nose, their brains gone. It's mm-hmm. would I I I wager it wouldn't be all that comfortable. <laughs> Hence the mythos of the, the mummies coming back angry. And you know, finally, one of the, the another great thing to come out of this is, despite all of the destruction of the artifacts, destruction mm-hmm. destruction of mummies over the years, the the pilfering of the the tombs, um, we continue to unearth mummies. Um, yeah, mummies uh, that uh, that early Egyptologists, ancient grave robbers, and Victorian ghouls haven't had a chance to pilfer. Uh, just one example is the Valley of the Golden Mummies, discovered in 1996. Uh, CE, uh, by an Egyptian archaeology team. They unearthed 250 mummies, and they estimate another 10,000. So, again, you just have a practice of yeah. of mummifying the dead for thousands of years. You're going to amass a lot of specimens. Sure, I'm sure that there's plenty of mummies to go around for this kind of thing. I guess the question really is like whether or not we should be removing them, or if we're removing them, should we be removing them from Egypt? You yeah. Know? Maybe, maybe they... Uh, Maybe preserve the the traditions in some way, but also make them available for the public. Yeah, it seems like it's been it's been kind of enough of a step step for us, a big enough step for us to to not just pilfer a culture's heritage. But then, at what point do we also have to say, do how do you how do you treat the ancient dead? Should the ancient dead be treated more respectfully than we're doing now? To what extent is that being done already uh, in in modern? Uh, Archaeological surveys yeah. of, uh, of, of ancient tombs. Well, I'd be curious to hear from uh, you know our listeners out there that are involved in um, you know archaeology or, or other disciplines that are connected to this. Um, you know, what are the modern practices, or what what's the? Surely there have to be journal articles about the ethics on this, yeah. uh, and and has that turned into some kind of a debate uh, within the community? Yeah, 
That 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 could be an entire uh, episode unto itself, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, um, if you have you know information like that, or if there's something about Egyptian mummies that we missed today, you know, let us know. Um, as we said at the top, you can reach out to us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. You can write to us there, tweet at us, send us a message. All those all those things, depending on what your medium of choice is. Yeah, and of course, stuff to blow your mind. dot com is the mothership. Uh, that's where we find all the podcasts, all the blog posts all the videos, uh, and, you know, we've had a number of pieces of content over the years related to Egyptology, uh, different blog posts that I wrote about either something that's purely cosmological in nature or something, uh, you know, tied to, to more to folklore or uh, or, or even um, archaeology itself. So check those out. I'll link to some related material on the landing page for this episode. Certainly our monster science episode. Oh, yes. Means. That'll definitely be in there. And uh, again, we're going to be experimenting with Periscope at the end of October. So, you know, if you've got some listener mail that you want us to, to read, uh, send it in. Potentially we'll be uh, able to read it during one of those Periscope airings or, uh, or, or I suppose the way Periscope works, you could you could write into us right there. Actually, like uh, communicate with us while we're streaming. Yeah, it's going to be a learning uh, experience for all of us. And the way to reach us through that method is at our email address, which is blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Yeah.